Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to another edition of The Bill Walton Show. Have you ever wondered when you visit one of our great art museums how all the artwork got there? The stories about the journeys that art takes to end up in a museum can be as fascinating as the art itself. But some stories can be quite problematic. For example, the art stolen during Hitler's Holocaust and the African art taken from Africa by European colonists during the 19th century. In America and Europe, thousands of paintings and sculptures have troubled histories and were likely stolen during the Nazi era. Then, there are the growing demands for the restitution of artifacts to Africa. Most notably, French President Macron set off a firestorm in 2017 by announcing, I cannot accept that a large part of cultural heritage from several African countries is in France. African heritage can no longer be the prisoner of European museums. Strong stuff. With me to sort this out is C.D. Dickerson, who serves as curator and head of the Department of Sculptures and Decorative Arts at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Incredibly prolific as a writer and lecturer, he has curated many major exhibitions, and I believe that C.D. is himself destined to lead one of the world's great art museums. C.D., welcome. Thank you very much. Tell me about introduction. Your, before we jump into our topic, tell me about your role at the gallery. I'm responsible for overseeing a, a collection that spans antiquities. Gallery only has a handful of antiquities up to about 1920. All the decorative arts sculpture produced in Europe and America between those two uh, poles. In addition to curatorial responsibilities, permanent collection, one of my great pleasures is curating exhibitions. And uh, this coming fall is one of the high points uh, of my career. We are, have, these, are these books from your upcoming exhibitions? Exactly. These are hot off the press, just shipped across the ocean uh, for one book that I just finished writing on a Spanish sculptor that will be the centerpiece of an exhibition opening on October 13th here in Washington. This was the transformative sculptor of the early 16th century in Spain, a guy who worked with Michelangelo and then went so back to So you're making Spain. me pronounce this name, Alonso Berreguet? Perfect, Alonso Berreguete. Berreguete, yeah, okay. Exactly, Pretty exactly. Um, and at the same time, uh, we will have uh, Alonso Berreguete, not a household name, mm -hmm. more of a household name is Verrocchio, whose star pupil was Leonardo da Vinci, and we will be having the first monographic exhibition devoted to Verrocchio that will be open at the same time. Painter, sculptor, and uh, phenomenal draftsman. So come to, come to so, Washington, come, so, come see uh, this. When you curate, we're, we're, we're talking about how art ends up in a museum and the securitist path it can take from time to time, almost always. What goes into curating an exhibition? You have to pull art from all over the world and work out uh, arrangements with other galleries and, uh, and Absolutely. Owners. A lot of it is diplomacy, it's negotiations, it's leveraging the gallery's own collections to be able to secure masterpieces from uh, you know, Bargello, Vatican, the Louvre, major institutions, creating a theme and then realizing all of these objects safely uh, to Washington. And part of your role in doing that is to make sure that each object is uh, in the legitimate hands of, the, of, of you know, legitimately owned by, by whoever's lending it. Yes, that... exactly. And one thing that we work out with the U.S. government is called immunity from seizure. 
um, so that when a work of art comes uh, to the U.S., um, if there are any claims brought by that work uh, in the U.S., that there's immunity from seizure, that it can safely go back to its home country. Now, you have some objects in your collection. I think we have a, uh, a chalice that... Uh has an interesting uh, provenance? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that when you, the average visitor goes through a museum collection, uh, many times there will be that credit line that says yeah. the last owner, the person who gave the work uh, to, the, uh, to the institution. Um, but there's much, much deeper stories many times Do you have with a respect picture of to it? works of let's, art. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, this is the chalice of Abbot Suget of Saint-Denis. Saint-Denis is a church that's just north of Paris. Abbot Suget uh, was kind of the leading uh, religious figure in France during the 12th century, um, served as the nominal king during periods when uh, the king was unable to occupy power. This um, is a work that at its core is a sardonyx, a type of uh, hardstone that was likely carved uh, in Egypt uh, during the first century BC, but at some point over the next 10 centuries, uh, it made its way, perhaps through traders up to Paris, got in the hands of Abbot Suget, who then commissioned so, the leading. So how many hands would an object like this pass through in the course of its thousand years of existence? Uh, one never knows. I mean, in terms of rightful ownership, <laughs> you know, this probably uh, transferred uh, 20, 30 times. 20, okay. Yeah. One never knows, but we do know from the moment that it entered into Abbot Suget's possession, um, it's fully documented in the treasury of Saint-Denis up until 1791 and on the brink of the French Civil War. At that point, the, um, the, the, the abbot was um, suppressed and all of the remains from the treasury were moved to Paris to the cabinet de Banay. And uh, at, at that point, this was supposed to be safe repository for the objects, but with the chaos of the Napoleonic Wars, we know that at a certain point it was spirited out of France, made its way to the UK, where it was bought by a collector in the early 19th century. Um, eventually, it traded. Spirit, spirited out means stolen. That seems to be okay. the case. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's documentary so it made its reports, way to London. made its way to London, but then was sold uh, into a, a, a prominent private collection um, and eventually was sold to the Wideners of Philadelphia in the early part of the 20th century and have since been fully documented, fully transparent um, knowledge of this work. No claims have been made for it. It's gone back to France. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Of, uh, you know, in a much more mundane world, you know, you think about deed, the, the title insurer for your house and how you got, have to go through all the previous owners to make sure it was legitimately passed from one hand to the next. If you think of the 4,000 objects you have in your, your exhibition or in your in your in your department, yeah. Um, I mean, the the number of uh, hands that's gone through has got to be incredible. Absolutely, but the documentary trail many times is is very scarce, and there you know there are gaps in the provenance. The provenance is the trail of ownership, and we are very very particular about trying to trace as uh, an excruciating detail each ownership step as best we can. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you know, the trail peters out or there will be gaps in the ownership. Well, there's some, you pointed out some, some we were talking earlier, some great stories. The four horses on top of St. Mark's right. in Venice. Right. I mean, this is just to, to make the point that, that, that things I... that we completely 
take for granted, um, you know, have problematic ownership histories. These were bronze horses. And, and this photograph, these are reproductions. The originals are inside the Museum of San Marco right. in, in Venice. And they stand um, above the, ar that's the archway entrance uh, to the church. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But these were, these were bronze horses that were created during Roman times, eventually made their way to Constantinople. They seem to have been um, on top of, of the main um, circus in Constantinople. And in 1204, Venetians took them, um, you know, spolia. Uh, that they brought back and very proudly um, mounted on top of, of San Marc. But, you know, in essence, they constitute uh, war loot. And, and this is a story that's been going on for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. I mean, the earliest documented instance probably involves this great um, stele. Uh, stele is what? A... a a large relief, a commemorative relief. Okay, that so takes... it's, a, it's a flat uh, work of uh, sculpture? E exactly. This yeah. one is about five feet tall executed in very shallow relief. It was executed in uh, Mesopotamia uh, in probably around 2000 BCE, Tigris, Euphrates, the Akkadian people. It commemorates a victory of the king who stands very proudly larger than his soldiers at the top of a mountain. Um, and uh, it shows, you know, even a fleeing soldier here turning back and trying to appeal for mercy uh, to the king. And there's an inscription um, that says exactly that this is commemorating a victory. But this was not found in Mesopotamia. Point in fact, it was found in modern-day Iran in 1898 or so by French archaeologists. And there's another inscription that was added to it that shows that, in fact, this was stolen in the year 1200 BC by a rival king who took it as victory spoils and was very proud of the fact that he was able to take this great um, commemorative uh, plaque so, so back he carves to his, his initials on the yeah. pretty much exactly exactly but you know it's just to show this kind of stuff is going on uh, uh, forever so where would you re repatriate this you know if it somehow illegally got out of uh, uh, Iran would you repatriate it to Babylonia to Iraq or would you give it back to Iran where it was found in the source country well yeah that's also one of the issues with re we're going to get into this in the next segment but with repatriating art back to Africa very often the are you repatriating to a, a country or a culture? Exactly. And they're not, exactly. A, not, they're not always, and usually are not the same thing. Nope. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. Uh, I'm here with C.D. Dickerson, head of the Sculpture and Decorative Arts Department at National Gallery of Art, and we're talking about the uh, interesting history that art objects have that, that have come into our great museums and how, um, how that, bringing it up to date about how we're going to be dealing with African art that's been taken by the colonialists and also uh, uh, the Holocaust art or era art that was uh, in, it, sometimes in the wrong hands now. So let's 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 turn a bit to where we uh, well let, let, before we get to the the Holocaust and the and the uh, uh, African art. Let's talk about the Elgin marbles. That's pretty interesting because sure. that's also another. Um, case where art was in one country and it's currently contested now between, I guess, Britain and, uh, and Greece. Right. I mean, this is the classic case of what do you do with uh, art that is no longer in its source country and seems to have had controversial circumstances of removal uh, between about 1801 and uh, 1806. Um, Lord Elgin, he was uh, the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire and stationed in uh, Athens at that point in time, um, claims to have received authorization from the Sultan um, to begin to take down and uh, remove 
the reliefs that decorated the Parthenon, the Parthenon, the, the, the great structure that was commissioned by the Athenian assembly about 448 BC. Um, it is kind of the centerpiece, the symbol of uh, Athenian greatness, when democracy, when the real meat of philosophical discussions about individual rights was born. A and this is the great artistic expression In of Athens, that moment. On, on the Acropolis, exactly. the Parthenon was the temple. Right. And these objects decorated that temple. Right. There's a series that decorates the interior frieze of the Parthenon that was removed, and also, um, you know, beautiful sculptures that come from the east and west pediment, the triangular space above the, the, well, the main portico. But there is a story about how these came to be more portable than they otherwise would have been. I think the Turkish, the Turks were storing uh, their ammunition or their explosives inside the Parthenon. Right. And they were fighting with the Greeks, is that right? right? Well, there was an earlier story in the 1690s, I believe, yeah. much earlier, um, that the Turks were using this as a, um, a an arsenal and a storage for gunpowder and whatnot, and uh, the Venetians were attacking and uh, blew the roof literally okay, off the Okay, so the, the Venetians, Parthenon. we've talked about the Venetians exactly. stealing the horses from Constantinople. Right. Now the Venetians are firing at the right, Turks at, 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 at the, the Parthenon, and they blow it up. Right, right. Um, so there was damage. Uh, you know, there, there are drawings that survived from the time that showed the incomplete state of what Lord Elgin was taking um, from um, the Parthenon. But, you know, the fact of the matter is these are absolutely exquisitely beautiful so, sculptures. So let's get into our topic more deeply. What's the case for restitution? If you're the Greeks, what, what are the claims you're making? Send us back these uh, marbles from uh, London. Uh, the claim is that Lord Elgin did not have authorization to take this, so there was a legal change of title. Yeah. Um, then rest on uh, moral imperatives that you have the standing, surviving Parthenon. Um, half of the sculptures do survive in Athens. Um, the case was being made that Athens had no place to properly display well, the Athens, sculptures. Athens has a museum where they have part of the marbles already there, exactly, and they, exactly. have a, they have space available for the ones in London. Right. So the, the new galleries, which uh, you see here on the left, just recently opened, well, re 2009. You know, so for uh, decades and, and decades, the case was couched, we're doing the Greeks a favor by preserving uh, the, the marbles in uh, British Museum at Bloomsbury Square. But, you know, that case is now eroded because you have beautiful gallery space with these beautiful Bloomsbury windows. Square is where the museum is. Exactly. Uh, looking up to the Parthenon so that you would be able to display the marbles within a beautiful context of their original location, uh, which is unique. Um, but let me ask a practical question. Museums are expensive. And it's easy to cut the budget of a museum if you're a government and you've got other things you have to do. Right. And Greece is broke. So if we bring them back to Greece, what's to assure us that these objects will, will, will stay uh, protected? I'm not sure you can have an assurance other than yeah. trust in an, another country and demonstration of what they have done here and a recognition that there is global interest in ensuring the well-being of these artifacts. Well, and it gets right into this notion about where does culture reside and why should the British Museum be the place where universally owned uh, for the yeah. whole world to see. So it's a very uh, exactly. 19th century uh, British Empire view of the world. Right. So that that's, that's where they ought to be. And it re really brings us back to the idea of uh, um, colonization and, and where this should be. Now, the other side of it 
is that uh, if they return these marbles, it's going to set a precedent for all the other museums. Right. So that's the big slippery slope argument, that once you begin to return objects to their source country, where do you stop? And eventually you get to a world where uh, the museums of every country are only showing the art of that country, which is obviously something we, we don't want. You don't so want to go have, to the National Gallery of Art and just see American paintings that were... Well, you'd have to break it into an Alabama exhibit, <laughs> exhibit and an Indiana, you know, if we really wanted to balkanize it. Well, that's the, the, the culture versus country issue comes up here, though, because one of the arguments is that the Greeks that made this um, 400 B.C., or roughly, are right. not the same Greeks that are there now. Right. And that's been a massive change in culture and country and that sort of thing. So to whom are you repatriating in this, and are those the, really the rightful heirs? Right, right, and, and whether or not nationalist agendas are coming into play um, in terms of the Greeks and people wanting to try to rescue cultural patronage for political motives. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. What, no, do you, what do you think ought to happen with the Elgin marbles? <sighs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm sympathetic to the fact that they, you know, part of them can be seen in the, the yeah. original context and part of them are in the British Museum. They're, the British so we Museum, get to see them both places. The British Museum is beginning a, a, a policy more of exhibiting them worldwide. They're about yeah. to travel to Russia. So the more people who are able to see these and to diversify locations, I think, has, has a bonus and a plus. Okay, that was sort of an answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's difficult <laughs> because it cuts to the essence of where encyclopedic museums are going to be going in the 21st century, an encyclopedic museum. An encyclopedia museum is? Uh, encyclopedic or universal museum, meaning a museum that tries to display the art and the heritage of all cultures across time, so that at one moment you can be looking at an altarpiece produced in Italy uh, from you know circa 1500, and you can make a short walk and see what was happening in China at the same moment in time. And there's obviously real benefits to being able to look at world culture um, globally and, and trying to understand how people... Well, it is one of the big benefits. In one place, you can see cultures across time. Exactly. And how many encyclopedia museums are there around the world? Um, Roughly. Men, I, I, you, know, I, I, you know, you think of the big encyclopedic museums, like the Louvre, the Metropolitan, yeah. but even the museum that I worked at, the Kimball, could be considered an encyclop in encyclopedic museum yeah. because there was a small collection of African, Asian... Uh, and uh, uh, Mesoamerican art as well. You're watching the, I want to jump into this, but I want to take a quick break. You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with C.D. Dickerson, head of sculpture and decorative arts at the National Gallery of Art. And we're talking about the issues of where art should reside, whether it should reside, whether it's originally created or in one of the encyclopedic museums. And there are no simple answers to this, and uh, but we're going to dig a little <laughs> further. And I want to turn our attention to the Nazi art to the not Nazi art, but the art that was stolen during the Nazi era and what uh, what the issues are there. Sure. Um, well, uh, as is widely known, uh, the Nazis um, during World War II um, forcibly stole works of art from Jews as well as purchased art under duress at below market values that then um, inhabited Hitler's collection and um, you know, it was, it was a great robbing of, of art throughout Europe. Immediately after the war, there was an ability, especially on the part of a group of Americans known as the Monuments Men, 
who were able to repatriate as far as they were able to go. That was the subject of a movie, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. Raper Europa, Robert Etzel, there are a number of fantastic books he's written about the subject. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's really only been since the curtain has fall with the, uh, the, the Iron Curtain um, in the early 1990s that the kind of documentation that's required to be able to find claimants and to be able to prove ownership is, is coming to light. Um, so it's really been the 1990s, early 20, uh, 21st century, um, that this has really come to the fore and really culminated probably in 1998 with um, what's called the Washington uh, Principles, which was organized by the State Department. Um, and it was... Um, that, you was know, that was Stuart, uh, Stuart Eisenstadt that was doing that? Exactly. And uh, really reaching agreement by multiple nations that they would look at the collections within their countries and tried to come to an understanding of really what was happening with the problematic ownership um, during Nazi, um, during the Nazi era. Well, the thing that struck me when I read this is the biggest single issue is number one is identify exactly what you've got. Exactly. And there are 25 million works of art in American museums, roughly. Yeah. And we think maybe twenty-five or thirty thousand of them might be. Yeah, that they have little gaps, you know, between whatever nineteen thirty-three up to nineteen forty-five. So, and, and a little gap, nineteen thirty-three to nineteen forty-five. Okay, that's subject, subject, suggestive, uh, but it, but the, for the individual museum who's part of this, or the individual country that's part of it, it's a massive undertaking to go right. through every single object and see whether it's got a good title. Exactly. And museums, the uh, National Gallery of Art has been at the forefront of the science, and it's kind of a forensic science of examining the kind of documentation that survives, um, especially in, in Eastern Germany, um, that has come to light to be able to try to piece ownership back together. And then you, you, know, you also have the problem that you're dealing uh, now at this point with the heirs of the original owners, and they aren't really certain what their grandparents or their parents might have owned as they were children. Um, so, the, you know, the, the process of who has the responsibility for trying to notify and to try to bring to light um, what's going on. Um, but it's really just about transparency, about putting these objects that are problematic on the web um, in hopes that people will recognize and realize that they might have a claim to a particular work of art. It seems to be losing steam, though, doesn't it? We're almost 80, almost 90 years since Hitler came into power and since World War II, as you point out, the uh, the descendants of the original owners are, you know, third, second generation, third generation. It, 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 this this whole initiative seems to be petering out. I don't know if the initiative is petering out or whether there are um, enough sufficient claims out there to continue forward. There, there's yeah. a lot of things that seem to be caught up in the courts, and I'm by no means an international law specialist, but there's, you know, there was a particularly interesting case that I was reading about that involves uh, Baron Herzog of Hungary, and he had a fabulous collection, you know, here's an illustration we have a picture of, of, his the, library of the collection right here. Yeah. Uh, that shows these fabulous works by El Greco, one of the seminal old master collections in private hands uh, before the war, completely confiscated by Hungary, um, occupies the, um, was, was sold to the Nazis, a portion of it was given back to the family, but immediately the Hungarians took it and put it in the Budapest National Museum, the Hungarian National Museum. Mm -hmm. um, when the Iron Curtain um, um, uh, uh, was erected, um, the heirs had no means to be able to try to recruit um, or to press claims in any sort of um, you know, court of law in Hungary. 
Um, so it's been up to the heirs um, in 2010 trying to press their claims through U.S. courts. And U.S. courts actually ruled um, in this particular case that the statute of limitations um, um, doesn't necessarily apply, uh, that the clock stopped when uh, the Iron Curtain was erected, which has given them an opening. Um, the problem has to do, though, with the way in which a U.S. court can prosecute a case um, on a, a foreign sovereign, uh, because there's the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, um, which says that a, a sovereign nation can seize the property of its citizens without the U.S. court being able to intervene. The only way we can intervene is right. if it's an international um, uh, uh, um, um, uh, claim. And here, it's saying that if there's economic damage that was done in relation to the genocide, that that, in fact, is a, um, a violation of international law. So um, they've, the International Court in the U.S. has ruled that the paintings need to go back. Needless to say, Hungary has appealed. Um, but this is showing that there, there remains a lot of tension in those formerly East Bloc countries with the repatriation yeah. of these, these claims. Well, the, the uh, Russia in particular is known as one of the leading repositories of Russian or all art, stolen Absolutely. art. Absolutely. And they're not doing anything to repatriate no. or return. There is a little bit of a thaw, and actually a little bit of the thaw will play out in Washington with respect to this exhibition because um, there is works that were taken from Berlin during World War II that are now known to occupy uh, Russia. And we had a Russian curator and a curator in Berlin write a co-entry, and we're going to have a plaster cast of one of the works that's being debated um, that uh, Russia has took. Well, and it, 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 it does flow both ways. Well, I understand that Angela Merkel was going to go to Russia to, for an opening of a museum, and her speech was going to be, well, I'm here in Russia, <laughs> and I'd like to ask the Russians to return all the art they stole from Germany at the end of World War II. Right, and it was preempted, the speech. <laughs> they, they, they canceled the speech. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it is, it, 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 and then Italy has absolutely refused to, uh, to, to do anything. And, yeah. And it's, uh, but in the U.S., you know, it, it, it has been working, and there are great cases even at, at the Kimball, for instance, which is one that I know well, you know, where um, uh, uh, two uh, Jews who were residing in, uh, in um, Nice, had their collection. This is a William Turner we're looking at here? Exactly. That is part of the Kimball's collection that was yeah. bought and part of the collection for many decades. Uh, but in 2006, a claim was brought against it. And um, the Kimball agreed um, to return the work to the heirs of the original owners. Um, the original owners put it up for auction, and the Kimball promptly repurchased the work. So it remains in the collection, um, which, you know, is a nice. Okay. So uh, we agreed it was yours, but then you're going to agree to sell it back to us. Yes. Yes. And then we paid for it. Right. So right. that's one. Uh, did you handle that? No, I didn't. That was before my time at the Kimball. <laughs> but, Still, uh, it was the Kimball and you were there. So right. that, that's. Uh, uh, so how much of the of the art looted during World War Two has been returned? Is it like one percent, 10 percent? You know, I've read figures know. where maybe 30 or 40 works okay, from the U.S. have... 30 or 40 works? From the U.S. have been restituted. I'm not sure about the numbers in Europe because, again, there are a number of trials and cases that are, are playing out. Um, I think there are two examples from the National Gallery of works that have been restituted, a drawing and a 17th century painting by uh, Franz Schneider. Um, but, but still, you know, and, you know it's, it's not huge floodgates of works of art going back. Well, it's an interesting, but I think it's an arcane issue. Uh, 
and hard for people to understand, and it involves plenty of lawyers and lots of litigation and lots sure. of legal fees. And so there's the there's and the a lot rub. of time on the part of your you know we have a dedicated person researching a Nazi era provenance at the gallery just to make sure every work of art is of fit clean of health. Uh, regrettably, that's all the time we have. Uh, Thank you, C.D. Dickerson, for your insights about uh, art and restoration or restitution. Now I'd like to announce that we are going to continue with C.D. in overtime because we haven't had a chance to dig into, I think, one of the most interesting topics, which is the return of African art, African objects, from European museums back to uh, Africa. So I hope you'll join me then. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.